1: Welcome to Biscuits and Jam from Southern Living. I'm Sid Evans, Editor-in-Chief of Southern Living Magazine. And my guest this week is the singer-songwriter, home renovator, and retail entrepreneur, Holly Williams. As the granddaughter of Hank Williams and the daughter of Hank Williams Jr., you might say Holly has music in her blood. And she's certainly carried on the family tradition, releasing three albums, playing at the Grand Ole Opry, and headlining shows around the globe. Today, we'll chat about some of her favorite memories of growing up as a Williams, her obsession with buying and renovating old houses, and how it feels to land in her grandfather's hometown of Montgomery, Alabama. Plus, she talks about the time Fiona Prine called her and asked her to open for John Prine at the Ryman, how she found the perfect farmhouse on Craigslist, and her hopes for the Hank Williams Museum. All that and more this week on Biscuits and Jam. Holly Williams, welcome to Biscuits and Jam.
0: Thank you so much.
1: Where am I reaching you right now?
0: You're reaching me in my mama's dining room in Nashville, Tennessee, covered in boxes. We're leaving my childhood home of 32 years tomorrow.
1: Wow. Big moves afoot.
0: Big moves afoot. She is coming down towards Montgomery, Alabama, where we are to be near the grandkiddos.
1: And so you've recently moved to... Montgomery, is that right?
0: Yes, sir. We actually left Nashville around two and a half years ago during COVID unexpectedly. We went to spring break for four days and never returned.
1: So what are some things that drew you to Montgomery?
0: Well, I mean, it's not like on the hip place to move list or anything, but I've been there so much from when I was young, obviously because of Hank Williams history there and my grandmother, Audrey even though they met an enterprise in Enterprise and Banks, Alabama, they lived in Montgomery and are both buried there. The Hank Williams Museum is there and just so much history. So now my dad spends half the year in Troy, which is 30 minutes from Montgomery, half the year in Tennessee. And, you know, our kids are really young and our parents are getting older. And we were like, we need to be a lot closer to aging parents. And dad's not aging. He's running around the stage, doing squats and Slamming drums and things, but he's older and we just kind of wanted to get in the middle of everything.
1: Well, you have some deep roots in Montgomery, like you said, with your grandfather, Hank Williams, the museum there. What kind of reactions have you gotten from locals that you're moving to town?
0: Well, it's so funny because it reminds me of elementary school when my dad was at the height of his fame and I was like the really cool third grader. (laughs) <laughs> and going to school and he won Entertainment the Year Award. And At this point, I mean, in Nashville, there's plenty of celebrity, plenty of music business. No one really cares anymore. But in Montgomery, my kids will come home from school. They're like, my teacher's flipping out and no one can believe that my bebop, which is what they call him, is Hank Jr. and People overall are excited about it. You know, I think Montgomery hangs on to their amazing history, whether it be Martin Luther and Rosa Parks or Hank and Nat King Cole and F. Scott and Zelda Fitzgerald. There's so much history there.
1: So Holly, with your dad being Hank Williams Jr. and having the career that he had and continues to have... You must have moved around quite a bit, lived in different places. I think you've said you lived in Fairhope, you lived in Troy, Alabama, you spent time in Montana. What place feels like home to you?
0: For our living situation, it was me and my mom and my sister in the Green Hills area of Nashville, and they split when I was really, really young, like two. So we lived a very normal life, unlike most people think. It was church, field trip, school. One house in Green Hills, but my dad split his time between Paris, Tennessee, two hours from Nashville, lots of hunting and fishing, and a tiny town called Wisdom, Montana, and then Troy, Alabama. And they all had the hunting and fishing stuff that he loves. So, you know, as I got older and just loved exploring the South and checking out all these towns, we've lived in, in the last three years, Florida, Natchez, Mississippi, now Montgomery, leaving Nashville. And it's really been a struggle, like a real struggle, because Nashville has changed so much as plenty of other cities have. I feel a real loss of my hometown. Where I grew up in Nashville was a very small town feel. We had the little pharmacy with gifts in the front, and we had the little local grocery store and the local sewing shop obviously all that is gone. So right now, in a weird way, Montgomery felt right to us. But that's been definitely something that we've kind of wrestled with over the years, because our world is so different and the boom of teardowns and architects and developers. So Montgomery is feeling right. And it feels close and warm and fuzzy in the ways I need it to right now.
1: (laughs) That's great. (laughs) Well, so you grew up spending most of your time really in Nashville in Green Hills. And, you know, I always love to talk about food a little bit on this podcast. Right. Who was the cook in your family? Was your mom a big cook?
0: Mom was the big cook. And then we spent a good amount of time with her family, June and Warren White in Marooge, Louisiana, which is honestly, that feels more like home than anywhere, but it's in the middle of nowhere and doesn't really have schools and things. But grandmother cooked, granny White, Aunt Donna, Mom. So they were the ones that were always bringing the food. And we are really, really big on food in our family. And it was funny because for holidays, I mean, I would ask my aunt in the morning, like, what are we having breakfast, lunch, and dinner? It was all laid out. It was all written out, whether it's Thanksgiving, Christmas, every single day, the whole meal was planned. And then you get older and we get married. And, you know, I'm asking, what are we eating tomorrow for lunch? They're like, well, I don't know what we're eating tomorrow for (laughs) lunch. I think this is like a weird small town Southern tradition that we plan our meals so far in advance and we get so excited about them. But, you know, the Southern Staples is what we grew up on and still get the same things around the holidays. And I cook some, we've got a lot of young kiddos. I wish I did more, but I'm actually excited. My mom's coming to Montgomery because I feel like I want to have her homemade chicken and dumpling afternoon with the kids and Learn a little more. You know, it's about time I'm 41, so I got to learn some of these traditions.
1: Yeah, you got to keep those traditions going. Exactly. So, Holly, you grew up in this extraordinary musical family and you're a songwriter and musician yourself. What was some of the music that you grew up hearing early on that really got your attention?
0: Well, it's kind of probably the opposite of what so many people think. Obviously, my dad was Hank Jr., but he always said to us, I'm not Boosty, for I'm Daddy. And repeated that a lot and really kept us totally shunned from the music business. My first award show, I was 26. My first time at the Opry, I was way late in my teenage years. He would let us go to concerts when we were little. They were very chosen and you know, lots of security and we would sit on these little chairs on the side of the stage, but his shows back then were incredibly wild. I remember the security guard saying there were more arrests at a Hank Jr. Concert than a Guns N' Roses concert. (laughs) So all that to say, he kept us very shielded from that, which was good. And so I didn't grow up like people think where they think Garth Brooks came over for dinner and Johnny Cash came over for breakfast. Now, he and Johnny were very close. I did not spend a lot of time with Johnny. We spent a lot of time with Waylon, but growing up, I thought Waylon was just like kind of my old sweet man who would make us brownies when me and Shooter were playing in the pool. Cause we were at his pool every day. So my first real boyfriend at 19 was like, you know, Wayland Jennings. I'm like, I mean, yeah, but not that big of a deal. And, Waylon. <laughs> and we went to a concert and I'm going, wait, Waylon's like famous, like he's like a legend. So all that to say, I learned so much about music later because dad kept us so protected. He did not really pick up the guitar around the house. He talked to us about turkey season and deer season and the dogs and the animals. So I really was left kind of to my own devices, quote unquote, to discover music. I always wrote lyrics my whole life. But when I started playing guitar around 16, started going down the road of deeper cuts from dad, deeper cuts from Hank Williams, and discovered through Hank Williams, really, Leonard Cohen, Bob Dylan, Tom Waits, Jackson Brown, Neil Young. Those were all the things that just kind of flipped my world upside down. And to this day, I love dad's music. I love classic country, everything from Radiohead to Patty Griffin to, you know, Isabel and Brandy Carlisle. I mean, I have such appreciation for artists and songwriters, not necessarily country or Nashville only. I rarely even listen to country music, but those were the artists, the kind of 60s, 70s singer-songwriters that really made such an impact on me. And I would later learn what an impact Hank had on them. And that was a really wild thing to go through because I was so used to being in Nashville, it's all about modern country and Hank Jr., Hank Jr. And then when I did my first like songwriter small tour in, in the UK, people were coming up from all these different countries talking about Hank. And I, I really thought dad was the famous one and that Hank Sr. had written, you know, hey, good looking. And I saw the light like I had no concept of his legend spreading the way it did. It was really an organic path. And my mom is an incredible musician, beautiful voice, classically trained pianist. But the style she's playing is totally different than I was listening to. So I kind of got to discover it all. And then dad and I together love Robert Johnson. And we love so much, you know, Lead Belly and Old Blues singers.
1: When it came to discovering your grandfather, Hank, and kind of learning about his legacy and his songs... What were some of the first stories that you heard about him?
0: Well, it was interesting because it was really through others. And what I mean by that is obviously my dad's alive and we're close, and I know all his stories. He doesn't tell me a lot of his stories, I hear them from other people, but I hear the appropriate ones. But with Hank Sr., a lot of people don't realize he died at 29, and dad was three. And so many people that he influenced or even that he was really close friends with are now gone. For instance, Don Helms, his steel guitar player, reached out to me, I guess in my early 20s. And, you know, we should have lunch one day. I mean, he was Hank's best friend. And I had it in my dang journal, call Don Helms, call Don Helms, never called him. He died. That happened a few times when I was younger and just didn't understand yet the impact of like, well, I can go to lunch with Hank Sr.'s best friend and hear everything. So. It definitely was like through going to the Hall of Fame Museum in Nashville, through going to the Hank Museum in Montgomery and hearing the stories and that's really when I learned more about who he was as a songwriter. He has some of my favorite quotes. One is, I don't know what you mean by country music. I just make music the way I know how. And some other one that I'm going to totally butcher, but something about I'm singing about the hopes and dreams of of the American people. I don't know what you mean by genre. I mean, he was really honest about that incredible talent that God gave him that poured out. He wasn't country singer only. He wasn't folk singer only. It's like Kurt Cobain said he was the first original punk. And in a lot of ways he was. I mean, back then there was you know heavy alcohol use, not showing up for shows. And he had his Jesus songs. He had his non-Jesus songs, his country songs. Then he had all that incredible poetry that he wrote for Luke the Drifter and there were just so many facets to what he did. So I spent a lot of time kind of going down those roads and and learning about all of that.
1: Well, you look at the lyrics to something like, I'm so lonesome I could cry, and they're beautiful and they're very poetic and really sort of dark. And he was writing on a lot of levels that I think don't come through automatically. When you hear them, you don't really think about the lyrics and what they mean, but there was some just beautiful stuff there.
0: Well, even last week, I, have for the first time, heard the Elvis performance of I'm so to cry. And supposedly he had just heard it that afternoon for the first time from a band member. And he said, we're going to do this number tonight. And it was during the Hawaii concerts, I believe. And he announced the audience, I just discovered this. And it's the saddest song I've ever heard. And supposedly he listened to Hank Williams, but there were just so many things that kind of like you say, and even with me in the car, I listen to songs I've heard for years. But when you pay attention to the lyrics, he was writing. I mean, that's why they call him the hillbilly Shakespeare from such a poetic standpoint that any human can relate to. Hear that lonesome whippoorwill, he sounds too blue to fly. There was no trend back then. No one was chasing certain lyrics and beer and trucks and all the things from today. So I always tell people, like, you should just read his book of lyrics. It's like reading a book and and discovering. Besides the music, which is great, just his writing was so incredible.
1: So you've written a lot of songs yourself and some great ones, and you've produced three albums, I believe, the last of which is called The Highway. And I just love the title track on that album. And I was wondering if you remember where you were when you wrote that one or what the story was behind it.
0: Yeah, I definitely do. This is before I had three screaming kids in the car, and I used to write a lot of songs in the car in those days. (laughs) Um, February marks 10 years since that album came out, so I'm actively trying to, to write for a new one, but it's very unglamorous. I was at a gas station in Green Hills in Nashville, and I remember so vividly pumping the gas and just starting to sing, you know, Out there on the highway, out there on the open road, Oh, baby, will you roll with me, roll with me, roll with me, head down and New roll with me, roll with me. I should not be wearing out the back out there with the boys I love. Everybody, will you roll with me, roll with me, running down this street? I just kind of kept singing it all day and went home and finished it. And another funny thing that Hank always said, he said, if a song can't be written in 10 minutes, it ain't worth writing. That's not necessarily true. We've had plenty of Elton John and Burning Top and songs and songs like House That Built Me that people wrote over five years. But for me, when songs flow out like that, they're always usually a fan favorite. So I, I wrote that pretty quickly. And with Waiting on June, I was literally vacuuming. It's very unglamorous and just started singing it and finished that quickly. So I think Hank had a real similar way of it. It's either like hitting you and God's giving you an idea, but a lot of my writer friends in Nashville are able to come home after a long day, think about it, mull over it, write some lyrics. And I can't do that. I mean, at all. When people are like, let's write a song at noon, or I've tried some co-writing. That just has never worked for me. So that one kind of came out of nowhere and fell in my lap, and kiddos like that one. And at the time, I'd been in the studio a lot, and I was really missing being on the road, being on the highway, and playing for fans and everything.
1: Holly, you also do a beautiful version of Angel from Montgomery. I've heard you sing that one in person. And of course, that's a John Prine song, and you also recorded a song with him called I'm Telling You. Was John a big influence on you? Huge, huge
0: influence. And I discovered him through seeing Bonnie Raitt, which is obviously a huge influence, in my early 20s. And I heard her sing Angel from Montgomery and then kind of went down the rabbit hole to find John's version. It's so funny because, as you know, people have either never heard of him or, or he's their idol. And the first time I went to a few of his shows, I think the Ryman Auditorium in Nashville was the first time. Just seeing someone like that who can captivate an audience and hold them with him and a guitar only in those lyrics and for two hours, people just barely breathe and listen to everything. That was incredible for me. And I enjoy when I'm playing with the full band, but my favorite is like myself and my husband on guitar or myself with an upright bass player. I love the intimacy of that. I love the stories behind the songs. So he was a huge influence. And somewhere that year when I was touring so much on the Highway album, I'd been on the road with Jason Isbell, and his wife Fiona called me kind of out of the blue and said, John, would love for you to open for him at the Ryman, and he'd love to do this song with you that your grandmother recorded called I'm Telling You, and I'd never heard Audrey's recording, didn't even really know she sang. I'd heard a little bit about it, but he just really took me, and he's done it with other artists under his wing, and he really pays attention to what's going on, offered a lot of opening gigs, and had me come up and do Stephen Colbert with him in New York, which was great. And just so kind and so full of almost an eagerness for the new batch of singer songwriters. And just knowing, you know, my dad's very famous and people want to get with him, but it takes a lot of time and energy to do that. And I just couldn't believe the time and energy that John took to pour into younger artists and say, come to the studio and meet me here and let's do this song. It was just so full of ideas till the end. So that was obviously a huge loss and I just forever love him, you know, forever inspired by him.
1: Yeah, I'm a longtime fan and very sad that I never got the chance to meet him.
0: Yeah. Did you get to see any shows?
1: I did, yes.
0: Yeah, it was fun. He had birthday cake delivered every single night backstage, whatever town we were in. He loved to sit in the back and literally eat birthday cake on this big old picnic table, we'd all just talk. It was so clean and old-fashioned and sober and hilarious. And it was a little bit of a different experience. My husband had been on tour with the Kings of Leon at the time. And I mean, it wasn't crazy, but, you know, it's a different different road show. So I loved pulling up and eating chocolate cake in a bad fluorescent lit back room and hearing stories. That was the best. <laughs>
1: I'll be back with more from Holly Williams after the break.
0: This episode is brought to you by Bumble.
1: Welcome back to Biscuits and Jam from Southern Living. I'm Sid Evans, and today I'm talking with singer-songwriter, entrepreneur, and home renovator, Holly Williams. Holly, I want to switch to homes for a minute. You are kind of obsessed, I think it's fair to say, with historic homes. And you've bought and sold and renovated more than most people do in a lifetime. What is it that you love the most about a beautiful old home?
0: Not only the obvious things of walking in and seeing, you know, pine floors with years of history and architectural details like arches into kitchens and beautiful brass hinges that will last forever, unlike the things that we use today. The quality items and the attention to detail and the craftsmanship, I think would be number one. You know, we live in a world where things are thrown up without care and just seeing the kind of heart and soul people put into homes back in the day, even in the non-grandeur homes. I mean, I love a, a huge Southern colonial and I love an 800 square foot simple farmhouse that was built with such incredible material. And I think people put a lot more heart and soul into their homes in the olden days, you know, whether that was early 1800s or even up through Really, 1985. You can find a great built home from the 80s. It still has so much character. Usually, if we buy an old home, I love to learn everything I can about the family that lived there and who lived here, who loved here, who died here. What are the stories? Even just walking in a random one where I don't know the people, I just love to imagine what happened here and what time period it was and were there children here and and just all the questions. I think that old homes keep my creative. Lights kind of lit up from a songwriting standpoint, honestly. And it's funny because when we were trying to figure out where to go after Florida and looking at different towns, and I would tell a realtor, you know, I I don't go after 1940. I just, it's just not in me. I can't do it. And they're so used to the opposite. Most people, which I understand, like they don't want to have to deal with all those issues and all the black mold and electrical problems. They want new, easy. So that's always funny. But I love them probably to a, to a fault of taking out way too many bank loans over the years. And I uh, got myself in a little tr- trouble at one point. We did a a whole thing of these rental properties and B&Bs and you know, just realized you kind of got to have one at a time and like live there to run that. But I love them, all the different shapes and sights and sounds of them.
1: I, I want to ask you about a couple of specific homes that have been important to you and one was a place that you bought and renovated in Cornersville, Tennessee, which is just south of Nashville. Right. How did you come across that place? And what did that project mean to you? So
0: that was a really lucky find. It was December 26. We had one baby and my in-laws had just arrived. We had a three-month-old. I had been in just the craziness of newborn and Christmas retail with my store, White's Mercantile. And I remember getting on the couch, just like, no one talked to me. I'm going deep in my laptop for a quiet time. And a friend told me, you should look at real estate on Craigslist and eBay, which I'd obviously never heard of. So I still feel like this is all so fortuitous. I just Googled old white farmhouse on Craigslist. <laughs> and it's like the third down that pops up. It says, Seven and a half acres, 120,000, you know, a pre Civil War farmhouse, Tennessee. And so I get all giddy. And we had been looking for something for like under 150, reasonable mortgage to get into. And we were living in the heart of Nashville and I was dying for like a weekend renovation project. And I remember my in laws saying, This is just too good to be true. This price, what is this town? No one had ever even heard of it. But we got out there, it was this precious. Amish family with seven kids who lived there forever and were moving farther out for some family stuff going on and fell in love with the bones of it. It was all the things. It was smelly. It was awful and dirty. And they had been not living there for a little bit, but it had the beadboard everywhere. The original beadboard, it had the huge shalings It had the old original fireplace in the kitchen. It was incredible. We fell in love with it. And made an offer, and they accepted, and it all happened very fast and unexpectedly. That was two thousand and fifteen. and at the time we thought, we'll renovate it, we'll rent it out as a b and b to kind of offset the monthly cost. And I thought, oh, I'm sure it's two thousand dollars to replace all the siding, and you know, probably a couple grand of painting, and that was my first old house, so I didn't know about. Cloth wiring or fireplace issues or plumbing problems. I mean, I knew nothing. So it was a big learning experience. It took about a year, but poured our heart and soul into it. And we were renting it. And then sometimes I just get tired of all the things I manage. So we took it off the market a few weeks, a few months ago, just to have a season of not getting called at 3 a.m. when the oven breaks, you know.
1: So you renovated another place in Nashville, which we actually covered in Southern Living, beautiful, white, colonial, but also needed a lot of work. What were some of your favorite things about that house?
0: Gosh, back in the day when no one cared about Nashville real estate or was moving here, those were kind of fun days for a flipper. I just drove down the street. It had been on the market for, I don't know, I think at least a couple months and saw the sign. and. I had never gotten into more of a ranch style, but it was just a kind of beautiful, smaller, colonial-ish ranch on a couple acres. And it's really nice to have a, a best friend who's a real estate agent, even though I drive her crazy. That's a big perk. So I called her and don't tell my husband, don't tell Chris, but can you get me in this house immediately? And I went in. It needed a lot of work, but I love untouched. So Instead of a 1930s house that was renovated in the 90s, and then you're paying for someone else's mistakes, it was untouched from like 1950. And it had the beautiful trim on the kitchen cabinets and little bay window nooks and lovely floors and the weird little details that people put in houses in the 30s. Just so many cozy corners and little reading nooks. So fell in love with it. At that time, uh, the only project we had done was Cornersville. And I was definitely nervous. I remember them telling me that there were some pretty significant black mold issues. We had to do a lot of remediation, but I really believe in writing a letter when you make a house offer. It is like all day long. I don't even know all the letters I've sent. I need to collect them all. But I wrote a letter saying we will not tear it down because they had multiple offers that weekend. And the other people said, we're going to tear down and you know build a big house and we kind of knew the family mutually. And I said, we will not tear down. We will do whatever it takes to love this house and, and get it up to par. And we spent probably a year renovating. Now I need to throw in my right hand guy who makes all this happen. His name is John Baum. He is a awesome country boy, lives out in Dixon, Tennessee and loves renovating old houses. And I found him 13 years ago, he showed up for an electrical job at my clothing store and we just started doing projects. Without him, I could have never afforded any of this. I could have never accomplished any of this. He does the work himself. I'm not hiring fancy Nashville contractors who then sub out. I pay the painters directly. I pay the tile guys directly. So me and John will just sit in a room and I'll be like, okay, let's kind of shift that window over a few inches and Maybe we'll throw a shelf there. It's very DIY, which I could list a thousand mistakes I've made doing it like that. But at the end of the day, it's also just cheaper. I love it. And I love the freedom of not having to commit to every single room so wholeheartedly in the beginning for an old house. I've never built new with an architect. I have no idea what that experience is like. And obviously you have to plan, but John and I kind of just throw things up and, and try them out. Obviously, it had been my long, long time goal to be in Southern Living Magazine. So that day you came (laughs) Yeah, I remember you came over and I was so starstruck and so nervous that Sid was coming to my house. I was like sweating bullets. And then y'all did such a beautiful job. It was the cleanest the house has ever been. And I kind of love mixing a lot of antiques, you know, found wherever you can. But then like the Pharaoh and ball striped wallpaper that was in the foyer next to all the old antique brass oil paintings i would collected from antique malls over the years. I did a really modern kind of brass French bistro shelving system in there over some pine pieces. And I love bringing in 80% traditional and then bringing in some really modern pieces. So that was a, a fun house. I actually really regret letting go of that one.
1: Well, you can always go back and look at the pictures <laughs> from from that shoot. <laughs> I
0: do a lot.
1: So Holly, I want to ask you about one more that is very close to your heart and that's your place in Natchez, Mississippi. You lived in Natchez for a bit. Talk to me about that house and how you all ended up there.
0: Yeah, so we were in Florida like I said kind of escaping all the crazy with the kiddos during COVID and during the lockdown and trying to figure out what what was next and I was Visiting in Marooch, Louisiana, where my mom was born and raised, where grandparents were from, Grady and Papa. and my aunt was a little bit sick, and I went to visit her. And my cousin and I both love old homes, so my cousin sends me a text message as a, a joke. She sends them like once a month, like check out this spread, like nothing serious. But I was only an hour and a half from Natchez when I got the text, and I had no kids with me that night, which is important because I stayed up till two o'clock in the morning. I remember I looked at it and I like immediately set up in the bed and kind of had like a little bit of an excited meltdown. What is this house? It is near Marooch, which is my favorite place, near aunts and uncles, small town. So I found every, you know, the pediatrician, the dentist, the school, the gas station. I kind of like made my list. Like, how can we do life here? And the next day felt very risque. My husband had no idea where he was, where I was. He thought I was driving to Florida he's like, what is taking so long? I'm like, oh, I'm just still with Aunt Donna. But I went to Natchez, of course, and looked at this house. It's 1824, beautiful kind of colonial white home, double porches on 20 acres with the most stunning oak trees I've ever seen in my life. And a little church on the property, a little cabin, just absolutely the prettiest property I've honestly ever seen in the South. And I pull up and The agent, she must have thought I had just lost my mind and ran through it and called my mom. And I was like, I want to move. I found a house in Natchez, Mississippi. I want to move here. And she's like, what are you talking about? You really need to call a counselor or something. And (laughs) I didn't mention it to my husband for probably four days. And it was eating at me because I'm like, we got to figure this out. Well, first of all, it was like the cost of a bad roachy ranch in Nashville. I mean, it's very cheap to live there. It's a very small town. So finally got the nerve to bring it up. That ended with me running out of a restaurant, bawling, crying, and him being like, what are you talking about? We've never even been to Mississippi. I'm so confused right now. And and I just was so emotional about it. I don't know what came over me. But after probably four weeks, I talked him into a visit. We met an incredible guy there named Tate Taylor. Tate is known for the movie The Help incredible movie director and producer. He has a really interesting little world of creatives there in Natchez. So we had dinner with some people, went to the school, and I don't know how I talked him into it, but he finally was just like, okay, we'll jump in. They have a golf course. I can paint in the church. My husband's a painter and musician. So we set up studio and it was really jumping off the bridge into the unknown. Like we're literally those people who fell in love with the house on the internet and just drove there and, and lived there. At the time, he unexpectedly went back on tour with the Kings of Leon last year for about four or five months. And that was hard. It was magical in the daytime. And when the sun went down and I'm in this house from 1824, that's three stories and it's huge. And it took me a while to sleep peacefully. At this point, I know that it's not haunted. It really is not. I mean, there are house cleaners in Natchez that say there are certain houses we will no longer clean in because it's so bad. But it was an amazing year. We loved the school. I loved the pace of, you know, a tiny town. You know, everyone, you need an oil change. You get it that day. It's not two weeks from now. There's still laundry. There's still meetings and emails and work. But to take a load off, I would just go tour one of those stunning mansions from 1810, you know, for an hour before school pickup And incredible history. My mom's side of the family, Papa and Granny, they spent a lot of time there. My great-grandmother, I've learned now, went to house tours there quite often, and that was kind of their day trip from Marouge. It's a magical place. If dad wants to hand me over some royalties, I guess we could keep it, but for right now, we're <laughs> going to have to sell it. I'm so sad, but it was it was an incredible year.
1: Yeah. It's a beautiful house. I've seen pictures, and it's a beautiful town, that's for sure. Holly, just speaking of paint quickly, you've worked on all these different projects. You've always got so many home projects in the works. Is there one paint color or are there a couple that are sort of your go-to that you can kind of rely on?
0: Yes, for sure. So I don't even know if I'm supposed to say this on a podcast, but I've never actually bought the Farron Ball paint. I probably should do that. I usually just have Sherwin and Williams match it, which is out of me being in a rush. Cause like I said, I don't plan anything. So that morning I'm like, Oh great, let's use this. And I don't have the 10 days to wait for it. So I just run down the street, but one is called pink ground from Pharaoh and ball. It is a hint of blush, not pink, but it's so beautiful that it can be, I've done it on entire living rooms that have like a black marble fireplace and it can still lean very masculine. If you have lovely pine antiques in there we just painted my husband's entire art studio. He's like, no, we're not doing pink ground in here. And I did it without asking. And now he loves it. He's like, the art looks amazing next to it, the light. So that's one color. And Sherwin has a, a similar color called intimate white that works really great also. And then um, I had two greens that I can't live without. One is called basil from Sherwin Williams. And one is called yay bridge green from Pharaoh. It is y-e-a bridge yay bridge green very historic and comforting and i'm renovating a project for a friend right now and we did the whole kitchen in that color the whole laundry room and it's lovely looks great with black soapstone countertops and and then um floor day cell f-l-e-u-r-d-e-s-e-l from Sherwin-Williams, is one that instead of using just any kind of the whites on trim and doorways when I just need like a basic clean room, I usually go with that. It's the tiniest bit of gray. It just lends a little bit of warmth and a little bit of difference versus the stark white. So I would say those three are my kind of go-tos.
1: All right, I'm taking notes. (laughs) This is great. When you think about spending the next few years in Montgomery, or the next little bit anyway, One place that could use a bit of renovation is the Hank Williams Museum. Do you have any hopes or plans for that?
0: I have hopes. My plans are not really in place yet. In fact, my husband is there right now with my in-laws. He just sent me some pictures. And my dad told me that he's been talking to one of the senators down there who really has a passion for bringing that museum up. As you may or may not know, Brian Stevenson with Equal Justice Initiative has just opened the incredible Legacy Museum and is doing incredible things in the town. And the Hank Museum is right next to it, but it's very dated and a very old building with a lot of concerns about fire. And so I've just learned all this in the last few weeks. And some of the people that really decide on the downtown are trying to put together a budget that the state would pay for, hopefully, to get that building up to shape with plumbing, HVAC, and fire codes, and then possibly look for a bigger space. The museum's great. It's very crowded. It's very small. There's a lot in there, but I'm really hoping to be able to get that going in the next couple of years. I mean, next year is his hundredth anniversary of his death. Next September 17th, 2023 will be a hundred years. So we've got some things in the works we're wanting to, to knock out before that. I'm hoping within the next couple of years, we could have a, a bigger museum, a newer museum and make sure that everything's protected and, you know, just another great addition to downtown Montgomery and, and what's happening there.
1: Absolutely. Well, good luck with that. Well, Holly, I just have one more question for you. What does it mean to you to be Southern?
0: Oh, goodness, to be Southern. Well, I guess to quote dad, it's full of family traditions. And Southern to me, whether it's a big family or a small family, we love things passed down and things inherited and to feel like we're kind of continuing the story of our families. If we were lucky enough to have a great family and continuing traditions, and like there's a story to everything,
1: yes, there is, especially in your family.
0: <laughs> exactly.
1: <laughs> well, Holly Williams, thank you for being on Biscuits and Jam.
0: Thank you so much, Sid. I've loved it. Thank you. Thank you. Love what y'all are doing.
1: Thanks for listening to my conversation with Holly Williams. You can visit hollywilliams.com to listen to her music, check out her retail shops, and more. Southern Living is based in Birmingham, Alabama. Be sure to follow Biscuits and Jam on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. And we'd love your feedback. If you could rate this podcast and leave us a review, we'd really appreciate it. You can also find us online at southernliving.com slash biscuitsandjam. We'll see you back here next week for my interview with Hallmark Holiday star and Mississippi native Lacey Chabert.